You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm Aaron Dietrich, your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond's content partner. Coming up next on SpyCast. The UK, their their forte is intelligence. And of course, they've been uh, fighting the Germans a long time. And so they sort of take the lead in bodyguard and uh, fortitude in some of these other um, operations that you're going to see uh, discussed when it comes to uh, trickery, when it comes to D-Day. Seventy-nine years ago, on this day, June 6th, thousands of Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy in southern France. This invasion, known as the D-Day landings, was planned and executed by the Allies through the masterful use of deception techniques. And who better to help us tell this story than Corey Graff, curator at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, Louisiana. In this episode, Corey and Andrew discuss how the Allies tricked Hitler and the German military into convincing them that the landings would actually happen in Pas de Calais across the country, and how the success of a number of smaller operations and the work of double agents built up a network of deception around the D-Day landings that ultimately led to the Nazis' demise. If you enjoy this show, please tell your friends and loved ones and consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The official podcast on intelligence since 2006 We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Okay. Well, really happy to speak to you, Corey. Um, Coming up very soon, D-Day, what a lot of people don't know, although I'm assuming that many people that listen to our podcast may know, is that the whole of D-Day was shrouded by what Churchill called a bodyguard of lies. Operation Bodyguard. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about that? What was Operation Bodyguard? Yeah, so um, this was, uh, Churchill had met Stalin at one of the the conferences, and he had that famous quote that uh, in warfare, the truth is so rare that it has to be accompanied by a bodyguard of lies. And that gets us to... um, an operation codenamed Bodyguard, and this uh, D-Day preparations are filled with various codenames. Now, there were different components to this. This was um, put together by uh, the London controlling section, and there are various aspects that we're going to talk about today about what they needed to do to sometimes move the Germans around, sometimes keep them in place, in order to pull off this massive amphibious assault. And just tell us briefly, what was the London controlling section, Corey? It's a group that was working on deception plans for D-Day. In essence, D-Day was sort of a known thing. It was sort of known exactly, uh, well, roughly when it was going to be and where it was going to be in in a vague sense. And so their job was to keep that uh, German military strength spread out along the Atlantic Wall all the way from Norway down to the border with Spain. So we're talking about a very large geographical area here. Help us understand that. The one that's most commonly known by people is the the deception about the Pas de Calais. So this is the shortest point across the English Channel from Dover to Calais. 
So this seems the most obvious place to attack because it's the shortest. We know that they actually land at Normandy. So this is just one part of it, but actually there's deceptions and feints and uh, subterfuge that go all the way from Norway around France and then all the way around to the Balkans, the Mediterranean and so forth. So what's going on there? Like, How do you even begin to control and organize that kind of thing? Well, it, 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 that's, a, that's a huge question to answer. Um, yes, there is uh, lots of ground that needs to be covered. And uh, some of the more, more famous ones, of course, uh, Hitler was very uh, in tune to the idea that the Allies were going to attack in Norway. Therefore, he kept many, many divisions up in Norway. Um, and as you said, we can sort of go around the horn. There's all sorts of places that this is... Uh, uh, where the invasion can happen. Of course, many, many uh, military activities have taken place in uh, northern Africa, Sicily, Italy. So there there was sort of some logic to the idea that uh, perhaps a southern France invasion was on the agenda. This is uh, uh, something that actually happens later as Operation Dragoon that's after uh, D-Day. As you mentioned, Calais, Yes, this is like 24 miles between the UK and uh, France at that point that's up near the uh, the Belgian border. This was a place that was on the minds of a lot of German uh, military leaders because uh, for one reason, Operation Sea Lion, their invasion of the UK was supposed to jump off of that point. Um, it's sort of a, a logical place. And as we know, uh, Normandy was eventually chosen, and Normandy has wonderful beaches for this sort of thing, but one of the big knocks on it was there was no port immediately available. There was going to have to be some fighting for a port to be gained by the Allies after they, they get their foothold. And sort of creatively, uh, the Allies made mulberry harbors, which are portable harbors that could move into place to continue to pour men and machines into that foothold once they they got ashore at Normandy. And what are these mulberry harbors? They're they're like uh they're cement and they're floatable, but they they allow you to build a, in essence a breakwater at any point, even a big broad beach like Omaha Beach, and you're able to bring ships and materials in, and you're not doing that sort of uh, the, the thing you see in Saving Private Ryan, where you're dropping the ramp and, and loading stuff right out on the beach. It's more of a of a dedicated harbor that allows you to bring in all the things that are needed to support an army: food, fuel, ammunition, and so on. Just before we start digging into the operation a little bit more, Corey, tell us a little bit more about how you deal with it at the World War II Museum. And one of the reasons why it's so perfect to speak to you is that originally the World War II Museum started out as the D-Day Museum. So just tell us how you approach this topic in your museum. That's right. We were uh, originally in 2000 when we opened the National D-Day Museum. This had come about for a couple of reasons. One was Stephen Ambrose was a, a local university professor down here and had written many, many books on World War II. Um, you've, you've probably heard of him if you've gone to the bookstore. You've seen Stephen Ambrose books. Of course, D-Day, Band of Brothers, Citizen Soldiers, a lot of these have to do with World War II. Now, when he would do these interviews, veterans would turn over material to them so he would end up with helmets and backpacks and rifles and other things from D-Day, in essence. And so he didn't quite know what to do with this material. As well, Andrew Higgins established the Higgins Industries down here, which are those, uh, among other things that they made, most famously, those landing craft, those big uh, ramp-doored front landing craft that you see in Saving Private Ryan and Longest Day and things like that. So the World War II Museum started out as the D-Day Museum in 2000, and we've been growing ever since. It, it takes a, more than a, a city block at this point, and it's seven different galleries. And we still have that old, original D-Day exhibit. It's in one of our first buildings, but we also talk about uh, the road to Berlin, the road to Tokyo, 
the home front. We've got a big, huge, impressive gallery with airplanes. I, people come and they uh, want to spend a couple of hours and they end up spending uh, a day or sometimes two days uh, in order to go through everything here at, at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, Louisiana. And, and just out of interest, what does it take to be called a national museum? I used to work at the National September 11th Memorial and Museum. We have the National World War I Museum. How do you become a national museum for a given topic? Usually you're a, a, an accredited museum. You're usually a, a Smithsonian affiliate. This is, I say usually, you uh, are making a, a big scholarly and museum-wide impact in the in the field of study. And, and you guys should know you're the international uh, spy museum. So uh, you have you you're beyond us. You're into the international realm. <laughs> yeah, we had to go through the United Nations uh, General Assembly and Security Council. I'm glad it all worked <laughs> out for you. Yeah, yeah, it worked out for us. <laughs> okay, and just briefly before we move on, so where are you as picking up the story? When does World War II begin for you? As obviously we know the day America enters the war, et cetera, the day America's attacked. But where do you just pick up the story and where do you just kind of leave it off? Yeah, so the, that's uh, – the mandate of the museum is America's experience in World War II. So as we know, the historians will tell you that World War II starts – and they, they argue about this all the time. It starts in 1937 in Manchuria or it starts in Poland in 1939 – we pretty firmly start uh, in 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 the Pearl Harbor range, December seventh, nineteen forty one, when America is is brought into this uh, conflict and it becomes a global conflict. Now, you might think, okay, well, we get to the very end, the atomic bombs are dropped and they uh, they sign the peace treaty on the, the USS Missouri, but actually, the Liberation Pavilion, the one that we're working on now, that's going to open in several months. Uh, deals with the fact of uh, th- that World War II impacts us and is going to impact us forever. So uh, it's it's kind of funny that you mentioned the United Nations. It's it's all about the Nuremberg trials and the establishment of the United Nations and and uh, sort of the, the impact of the Holocaust and also the heavy impact on uh, the American people, many many deaths and and sort of that legacy to to continue to to discuss. World War II, this thing that happens from 1941 to 1945 for the for the uh, Americans, how that sort of just continues to to shape our world today. Just to clarify, for anybody that wants to visit, it's in downtown New Orleans, right? That's right. It is. It's uh, it's very near downtown. You can you can walk over from Bourbon Street if you want, and uh, you know. You can only hang out on the street for so long. You want to do something a little bit more heady and go to a museum. So uh, we love to have you. And quick question before we dig back into the D-Day deception. Uh, there's a gun to your head and you have to choose muffalette, a sandwich, po' boy or gumbo. Which one do you go for? You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of jambalaya. I'll, I'll tell you the truth. But I, oh, out of those, yeah, you know, yeah. a, a shrimp po' boy, you, you really can't <laughs> go wrong. That's the other thing is... Uh, Always wonderful eats down here in New Orleans. It's a good eating town. So let's uh, go back to D-Day. Let's go back to Western Europe. So we've got 1944. Walk us up to D-Day. So we know that Stalin is constantly pressuring the United Kingdom. And then when America enters the war on December 41, uh, the Allies, the United States and the UK... And he keeps kind of pressuring them and, you know, they say we're, we've got SOE and OSS, we've got, you know, bombing campaigns in Germany. But what he actually wants is, is Allied boots on the ground fighting the Germans on a second front. Just walk us up to that period where D-Day actually happens. Yeah, in 1944, uh, many historians will tell you that that Germany is kind of on the ropes. They're... they're uh, uh, losing ground to the to the Soviet Union uh, quite dramatically. Uh, things are not going so well, but they're still quite, quite powerful. So you alluded to Operation Bar- Barbarossa. We're going to try to get into as many Operation uh, code names as we can here. Um, the, the German invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 1941, and that went poorly for the Soviets for, for quite a while. However, we've seen sort of the turnaround at Stalingrad and Kursk 
in in the the 1943 era and the soviets are being able to push uh germany back now simultaneously down south in north africa the allies have have landed they've secured north africa for the most part moved on to sicily of course there's the famous operation mincemeat uh which is a a, a, a sort of a highlight of of spycraft i think where where the uh the body of a british prisoner was uh was uh, dressed up like a a, a, a british a naval officer and floated ashore in spain with intentions to actually land elsewhere um so anyway back to, we're doing sicily and then into italy now one of the things about italy is it's quite difficult especially when you get up to the alps to to sort of break that those that fortress that wall along uh, Italy's boot. So, yes, for years Stalin has been clamoring for the allies, meaning the UK and US to open a western front, uh, a western uh push through France most likely in order to relieve pressure. You know, Germany has, say, 300 divisions, and it's a little bit like a risk board. You have to put them all over the place to protect this and that. And if they can concentrate more divisions against the Soviet Union, that's bad for the Soviet Union. The threat of an invasion in the West brings many, many divisions to France, Norway, uh, down the line. It was uh, the, this Atlantic Wall we're talking about and relieves a lot of pressure on uh, the Soviets. So what we see is I think that probably Stalin would have preferred action in the summer of 1943, but when the summer of 1944 is on the horizon, um, it's almost a, de a demand. Uh, most of the Western activities that have been happening are air power. Now there's a little bit of a sidelight to this is starting before D-Day in say February uh, you have uh, the Army Air Forces doing what is called the Big Week, where they're going after Luftwaffe assets, both in the air and on the ground, quite viciously. And what you're doing is you're eliminating the Luftwaffe's air cover so that when soldiers are actually on the beach, you control the skies. And this is one of the things that early on the Allies needed, uh, they knew they needed to do for D-Day is control the skies. How much of this do you think is the Allies saying the Soviets are advancing quite significantly? Uh, although they're ostensibly Allies, nobody's under any illusions that it's a very different type of system. I mean, early in uh, the Russian Revolution, Churchill said that we should strangle the Bolshevik baby and its cradle. Uh, so how much of it do you think was Allied leaders saying we don't really want this communist army coming all the way up to Germany or, or we only want their Western advance to go so far. We really need to get boots on the ground and start claiming territory. Was that part of it at all? I think that is uh, a, 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 an aspect of this. Of course, the primary thing was to, to beat uh, fascist Germany, but there is sort of secondary uh, considerations that you have to think of. The Soviet Union, though allies, were sort of the peculiar allies compared to the UK and the US. And there is some merit not only in, in Europe, but in the Middle East and in Asia, where there's some sort of contention, particularly, to be frank, after the war appears to be going the allies' direction and Hitler is not the threat that he used to be. You sort of see some tussling um, among the allies as to what kind of uh, control they're going to have over the world after after the uh, the fighting stops. And in their run up to D Day, one of the things that's quite interesting is that this is all planned at the very highest level, right? They don't just say to some subcommittee, "Oh, go and go and figure this out." Blah blah blah. This is. Churchill, uh, Roosevelt and Stalin, it gets discussed at Tehran, they go through all of this stuff, they, it gets signed off on, etc. So just help us understand the decision making surrounding this. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the sort of the real key factors in, in Operation Bodyguard is Churchill. And he's the one that appoints the, the London controlling section in, in some fashion or other. 
uh, you know, traditionally we have a situation. This is this is always kind of a, a joke among the alleys. I don't know if you want to call it a joke, but uh, like a like a saying that the Americans are are giving money and material. The Soviets are giving manpower or blood. Some people will actually say, sort of crassly, and the UK their uh, their forte is intelligence, and of course they've been uh, fighting the Germans a long time, and so they sort of take the lead in bodyguard and uh, fortitude and some of these other um, operations that you're going to see uh, discussed when it comes to uh, trickery when it comes to D-Day. And for this relationship between the Allies as well, it starts off with the British taking the lead, but then eventually the pendulum swings and the Americans take the lead at a more general level. But it seems like what you're saying is that, you know, the British know the neighbourhood, they know the terrain, the topography and so forth. It just makes sense if they're, you know, they've been at it for longer, they've got the system set up and it's their kind of neighbourhood, so the that this has been left to them. But at a more general level, I mean, and this comes through in just Eisenhower being the supreme commander, the Americans are in the driving seat by this point, right? Yeah, you see that. You see uh, sort of a, a transition in who the senior partner in the West is. Early on, uh, you know, the English uh, probably quite wisely prefer to sort of pick at the edges. Uh, maybe they're using some of their intelligence and espionage and subterfuge when it comes to these amphibious landings that usually take place at night. They're kind of small. Usually they take the lead. Now, almost cartoonishly, you have the Americans who have very little experience in, in modern 1940s combat who are kind of the 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 angry little brother who's like, let me at him. You know, we've got to have this knockout blow. They're much more gung-ho. And that the experience of Kasserine Pass and things like that sort of maybe sober the Americans on on sort of what combat is about, especially against sort of a highly mobile, highly modern uh, army like the, like the Germans. So, yes, by the time D-Day comes around, we're seeing a little bit of that let me at them coming out. So um, they're slowly becoming the senior partner. They have uh, more military power, and uh, the Americans are, are sort of the orchestrators of this uh, thousands of ships and hundreds, you know, more than a hundred thousand men. It's a, a a morning invasion, and it's sort of this along this huge fifty mile front. It is sort of that, uh, at least the beginning of a of a knockout blow. Of course, we know that the war continues on through the winter of forty four, forty five, and and into the spring. The 20 Committee, or more famously the Double Cross Committee in its Roman numeral designation, was a counter-espionage and deception operation run against German agents in Britain by MI5 during World War II. It was a major intelligence success. Out of over 300 agents, it is estimated that the amount who escaped detection can be counted on one hand. What is more, they were doubled, i.e. they were double agents as agents who were originally sent to work for the Germans, but who were turned to now secretly work for the British. Now the British could feed the Germans false intelligence and engage in strategic deceptions such as D-Day. For example, Agent Hubert for the Germans was actually Agent Brutus for the British, a Polish Air Force officer who helped spread disinformation to the Germans that Allied attack was going to be at the Pas de Calais instead of Normandy. Agent Alaric for the Germans was actually Agent Garbo for the British, a Spaniard who kept up the subterfuge that the real attack would come to the north in messages he sent days after the D-Day landings in Normandy. And Agent Direct for the Germans was actually Agent Bronx for the British, a Peruvian raised in France who as part of Operation Ironside misled the Germans into thinking the landings would take place in the Bay of Biscay, thereby keeping the 11th Panzer Division in Bordeaux and away from the beaches at Normandy. Fun fact, she was named after the cocktail The Bronx, featuring gin, orange juice and both sweet and dry vermouth, not the New York City borough.
We'll be right back after this. Hey everybody, I want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor, Splunk. You know, you need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere. Splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. The world's largest enterprises rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. And let's focus in on on D-Day now. Um, One of the things that I I was wondering if you could educate our listeners about, I know that you're an expert in the aerial component of World War II. So so you're the Allies, you're in England, you're getting ready to invade. What's the aerial situation like? You you alluded to it a little bit earlier, but just help us understand, or is the Luftwaffe just an irritant by this point? It's like mosquitoes when you're you're sitting outside having a barbecue. Give us us some sense of what the aerial situation is like across Western Europe at this period for the Allies. Sure, you know, uh, bombing efforts in in uh, uh, based from England start out quite small, and the Luftwaffe at the time, the German Air Force, is quite powerful. They have um, many uh, aircraft and aviators in, say, France and Germany and and, and the like, uh, able to go up and meet any any bombers that come through day or night, and. This slowly changes over time, although the Allies have um, certain setbacks. I mean, they have disastrous bombing raids like Schweinfurt and um, uh, similar ones where there's actually pauses in the bombing, etc. But starting uh, just, just about as 1944 becomes 1945, the, uh, the power of uh, the Allied air forces is growing over time, and they have supportive fighter planes that can take uh, these heavy bombers to and from most targets, and they have lots of these fighters. So one of the things that sort of takes over, because they're they're anticipating D-Day, a a landing in, in France, is just eliminating that Luftwaffe threat. So they have um, the quote is the you know the big week that happens in February where the stick to the bombers order that the fighters usually had was lifted to just go hunting and that meant Luftwaffe airplanes in the air and it meant Luftwaffe airplanes on the ground at air bases in France etc. So because they wanted to eliminate they wanted to have a dominant air presence over this landing. They work to just make the the Luftwaffe a, a feeble skeleton of what it used to be, and it, it's quite successful, um, as we know, with a couple of small exceptions. No German aircraft were able to to make it to the to the beaches. It's a while since I've read one of these big sweeping histories of the Second World War, but I remember one of them. It's like the Americans are producing, I can't remember the specific statistic, but basically this idea of America as the the arsenal of democracy is this big behemoth just pumping out things that are needed for mechanized warfare or or modern warfare in the Second World War. How many planes are are the Americans, you know, producing per month or, or just give us some sense of the, not just the replenishment, but the the waterfall of, of aircraft that are coming the Allies' ways compared to the Germans who are really struggling uh, to replenish what they're losing? That's true. You know, uh, very many uh, aviation factories within the United States were making airplanes. And you can crunch the numbers. I, I'll uh, America's entry to World War II, they, were, uh, they had made about 300,000 combat aircraft. And you can sit there and, and do the math and... and Basically, you're talking about the birth of an airplane every 40 minutes throughout those three or four years, the three and a half years. Um, so, yes, you're getting airplanes by the dozen or, or more, 
and then ships, you know, Kaiser, of course, was was famous for making uh, ships in, in just a couple of weeks, uh, Liberty ships, supply ships that were able to come across the North Atlantic, and they're full of supplies. And they're full of supplies not only for the Americans, but they're um, supplying the UK and supplying the Soviet Union at the same time. So the United States was, was sort of unfettered by a lot of the combat that was taking place through the rest of the world is, um, is a breadbasket of supplies for the Allies during the war. Okay, so we're up to uh, June 1944. We've had a whole series of historical processes that have led to World War II. Uh, then we have the Germans invading Poland, Britain's in the war. We have the Germans invading Russia, uh, the Soviet Union's in the war. We have the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, America's in the war. So all of these planes are coming, the ships, the goods. We want to land in Western Europe. We want to get boots on the ground and take the fight to the Germans. But it's still going to be very difficult because they've been at war for quite a long time. They've been in it continuously. They're very tough. They're very seasoned. So we really don't want to land and have, say, the 1st SS Panzer Division breathing down our necks when we our feet first touched French soil. So we need to create a series of deceptions. So just walk us through this process. So fortitude is the is the main part. We've got fortitude north and fortitude south. Help us understand what's going on there, Corey. How do they use these operations to deceive the Germans and, and successfully land uh, on D-Day? Right. You know, we were talking about sort of that risk board, you know, uh, the, the, the board game. You have to spread out your armies in order to protect what comes and the Germans were in a situation where they were uh, protecting a lot of coastline. This is uh, the famous Atlantic Wall. And the Atlantic Wall, after 1943, comes and goes and there's no invasion. Uh, it's pretty certain that uh, spring of 1944 is going to be bringing an invasion somewhere along that, quote, Atlantic Wall. And we're talking about... Uh, uh, Norway to the border of Spain, uh, Belgium, uh, uh, France, etc. So Hitler bolsters his units in the area, and he also uh, takes Erwin Rommel, one of his famous generals, and uh, puts him in charge. And there's a little bit of discussion and debate as to how to deploy units. Rommel is, is really interested in having these units that, that are, in essence, right on the beach, toes in the sand, awaiting um, the arrival of the Allies. But you have to have more units to do that. If you back them off a little bit um, and make them able to respond to this area or that area uh, once the invasion starts, which Rommel didn't like because uh, you you get that foothold. So there's a, a lot of coverage. So the Allies are using that to their advantage. They're creating plans that are, are fictional for a couple of different attacks. So we, you talked about Fortitude North and Fortitude South. Fortitude South uh, was uh, usually, uh, for the most part, an American endeavor, and it, it uh, was centered around the first army group, which was a almost completely hypothetical uh, military organization that was being talked up and, and uh, discussed as if it was real. Now, they assigned a, a, a much feared and, and, and um, allied general, probably one of the more feared allied generals when it comes to uh, uh, the Germans, in George S. Patton was in charge of this first army group. Now, the first army group, the plan was to come across at Padakale, sort of the standard thing that the, that the Germans were expecting. And in Eastern England, you have a situation where this massive army group is supposed to be existing. And one of the things that Fortitude South did was via sight, sound, radio chatter, create out of whole cloth sort of this artificial military that was going to come ashore. Now, in the north, 
there's a uh, this is sort of playing to Hitler's plan that that uh, the invasion is going to happen in Norway. Uh, the the Fourth Army, British Fourth Army, was based in Edinburgh, Scotland, and their plan, again a hypothetical plan, a fictitious plan, was a, a an attack in Norway that turned out to be a feint for another attack further up the coastline in Norway. Now, this unit is a little bit less nuts and bolts. North is a little bit less nuts and bolts because German aircraft couldn't reach the the Scotland area without a, a whole lot of trouble. So it's sort of more on paper, on in radio traffic, whereas the Fortitude South, which was in range of, of, of reconnaissance airplanes, creates this whole artificial army, not only in in paper form, but in tangible form. This is a, a situation where we have the, uh, the 23rd Her- uh, Headquarters Special Troops, which was 1,100 men masquerading as a couple divisions. And they did that through... Uh, inflatable tanks, inflatable landing craft, artificial airplanes, basically taking the same vehicles and running them around and around and around so they look like the wear and tear of hundreds, if not thousands of vehicles. We have sound recordings being played from these bases in order to sort of give the ambiance of of many men and machines. This is something that that actually happened during the Battle of the Bulge a little bit later is the allies on the lines, the Americans on the lines knew something was happening just because of the sound, the hum, the roar from uh, German military units on the other side of the line. Um, Of course, we have artificial radio chatter, all the chatter that you would expect for a couple of divisions, which I'm sure kept many, many people employed talking back and forth. You're just making an atmosphere in order to to make make these divisions seem like they exist. And we get into a situation where instead of the 35 or 40 divisions that are in um, the UK at the time, Germany, for various reasons, including um, double agents, thinks that there are 75 to 90 divisions awaiting a jump off in the UK. And that sort of freezes the Germans when uh, Normandy becomes a thing. June 6th happens and there are people coming ashore because they think that it may be a feint for something bigger and bolder elsewhere. And so that keeps the German military units in place while the foothold is gained in Normandy. And that unit that you referred to, was this the unit that recruited what we would call in modern terms creatives? Uh, people that were uh, worked in the theatre and cinema and so forth, that were looking for all these kind of artsy people, or is that a different unit I'm thinking of? No, that is. That is the, the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops was the Ghost Army, which is always discussed as a group of artists, engineers, along with professional soldiers and draftees. We're talking uh, some of the people that were in this unit were fashion designer Bill Blass, painter Ellsworth Kelly, and uh, photographer Art Kane. So these are, are, are people that are part of this unit. It is, there's great stories of, of um, soldiers in the unit. Their, their whole job was to wander into a pub in England with a uh, either a hypothetical or a real unit division crest on their shoulder, spend about 15 minutes, walk out, change insignia to something else and go into a different pub just to give the appearance of, of the place being overrun with soldiers when it was just one person doing uh, their 15 or 20 visits in one night with different, different uniforms. And help us understand just a little bit more uh, how they built up this deception. So you've already alluded to it. So there was radio traffic, signals intelligence, there was physical things, dummy tanks, um, people going into pubs with, you know, fake uh, arm insignia and so forth. So there was a physical component to it. And then there was the 
agents that were on the ground as well who are like picking up information. So there's there's so much effort that goes into creating this deception. Just help our listeners understand if you if you want to go ahead and do this, like what is it your what is it you need to set up? So you've got the agents, you've got the physical, and then you've got the radio. How do you coordinate that orchestra? It seems quite a difficult thing to do. It is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, and uh, I think it's worth mentioning that there's sort of, you know, the human aspect maybe uh, gives it a, a believability. And what I mean by that is Fortitude North is concentrating on this Norway situation. Uh, Fortitude South is is concentrating on the South. And there's a lot of overlap, a lot of hum. There's a lot of disinformation. There's a lot of various plans that are all sort of going at once. Now, I think that, that the, the London controlling section was controlling this quite a bit, but there are um, many, many overlaps, mistakes, but this is coming from humans and there's going to be mistakes and there's going to be faints and there's going to be um, allusions to this or that plan that don't work out. So what we get is a situation when it's sort of all, all taken from the German side is it seems like believable noise, but noise nonetheless. In some sense, you could probably argue that the disjointed nature of it all taking place actually contributes towards the deception. It's not actually a negative thing if there's overlap and complications and disjointedness and so forth. I think that's exactly right. I think that that's what you would expect, and it's probably what the Germans witnessed when it came to Sicily, and it's what they witnessed when it came to North Africa. So they wouldn't expect anything different um, when it comes to this invasion in France. And just to go back to the US first US Army group, so Patton, he's got a very different style from, say, Bradley and Montgomery. It seems to me, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, but it seems to me that maybe the reason the Germans thought this of him was that he was the Allied field commander that most closely resembled German way of war at that time, which was very, you know, aggressive and hard driving and Actually, sometimes when I think of Patton, it reminds me of this quote from U.S. Grant. He said, the art of war is simple enough. Find out where your enemy is, get him as soon as you can, strike him as hard as you can, and keep moving on, which in, in, in some senses is very kind of Patton-esque. Uh, do you agree with that? Or yeah, help us understand why Patton was feared by the Germans as the, as the field commander for D-Day? Yeah, I agree with that completely. Of course, the... Uh the Germans had witnessed World War I as the Allies had and, and were s- sort of averse to this idea of a static, war- static warfare, this bloodbath that takes place in these trenches. And they had developed a system leveraging aircraft, which are coming into their own, and vehicles, including armored vehicles, which are coming into their own um, throughout the, the 20s, 30s, and into the 40s in order to make these sort of armored spearheads that just keep moving you don't you don't have to fight everybody if you're if you're punching through going around the back um, flowing in nullifying that army bypassing that army that sort of thing and you're probably exactly right Patton sort of had that armored spearhead in mind when he operated uh, uh, his units during uh, the early part of the war. And so in a lot of ways, Patton was a lot like the the Germans and how they operated. And to be frank, I think you'll, you'd find historians and, and uh, military people that would say that that Patton was a little bit reckless, maybe not as considerate or, or um, uh, heady as, as some of the other allied generals. But that that fearsome action and that constant action was something that the that the Germans feared once the the breakout happened um, at D Day. So we've got the Fourth British Army headquarters in Edinburgh, which is less physical manifestations. Then we've got the First U.S. Army Group, which is you know a whole variety of things, including including physical manifestations like dummy tanks and so forth. Then. Help us understand, how did they try to mask the other things, like what day it's going to happen, what time of day it's going to happen? 
Because um, these are other questions that the Germans are asking. It's not just where, but it's when and on what. A lot of the 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 when was was fairly well established, or at least could be sort of uh, uh, speculated by the Germans as well as the Allies. Uh, you need certain things if if you're going to have all of these airborne actions, paratroopers, and the thing, and then and the like. You you need uh, moonlight, most likely. Um, as well, if you're going to start this inf- amphibious landing in a morning type situation, you need a low tide in order to uh, avoid a lot of these Atlantic wall type obstacles that the Germans had set up. So the original D-Day landing date was June 5th, believe it or not. And it was moved back because of poor weather. And the weather wasn't a whole lot better on the 6th, but it was it was good enough to take the gamble and make the move because otherwise you may have to wait through a week or two-week cycle in order to get the, uh, the environment the way that you want it when you attack. So I think that if you ask the average uh, German general or intelligence person, they would be saying... We're talking spring in 44 and and it, it wouldn't be a complete surprise. A lot of that a lot of that is is uh, sort of well established when it comes to making that move. Omaha Beach and the US Army Rangers have been made famous by the Steven Spielberg movie Saving Private Ryan. Further east at Sword Beach, the British First Commando Brigade made its way ashore commanded by Simon Fraser, Lord Lovett, an eccentric Scottish aristocrat with matinee idol good looks and a personal bagpiper. I can't decide which one of them I would want if I had a wish. <laughs> he commanded his piper, Bill Millen, to play tunes such as Highland Laddie and Road to the Isles as they made their way ashore under fire. Millen reminded him that this went against regulations laid down since World War I since the pipes obviously drew enemy fire. Lovett responded, Ah, but that's the English War Office. You and I are both Scottish and that doesn't apply. The unarmed Millen marched up and down playing the tunes as machine gun and artillery fire rained down on the beach. He met German soldiers after the war who had manned the guns above the beach and they said they didn't shoot him because, quote, they thought I was crazy. Close quote. Mellon was mentioned by President Reagan in one of his most memorable speeches on the 40th anniversary of D-Day and was immortalised in another film, The Longest Day. So we're getting up to the day of D-Day. Uh, we have up Operation Taxable and Glimmer, which are all these metal strips that create the appearance of uh, movement where there's none. Then we have Operation Titanic, where dummy parachutists are dropped. Uh, you know, these parachutists called Rupert in, in the UK. So we have uh, Operation Titanic, and then we have Copperhead, where Montgomery, or an actor who looks like Montgomery, appears at a talk uh, in Gibraltar. So there's all of these things that are masking what's going on. Yeah, help, help us understand just this, this, these final hours as we come up to men getting on board ships and landing craft and so forth. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. The, the, the deception goes right up till the end. You had alluded to chaff, uh, in essence, aluminum foil strips that could be dropped that, that sort of appear on um, German radar and other surveillance equipment as if uh, that huge fleet is going to, to Calais. And then Operation Titanic, which is dropping, say, 500 or more uh, of these dummy parachutists, they're they're like a third the size of a of a human, and they're usually made of canvas filled with sand. They're made to actually explode or pop when they hit the ground in order to sort of get rid of the evidence. And they were usually deployed with uh, actual live SAS agents who were able to play recordings of gunfire, yelling, marching, that sort of thing. 
And these, uh, uh, the, the, the British called them Ruperts and the Americans called them Oscars. Um, they were dropped near inland of La Harve, which is sort of the, the um, just to the east of the landing beaches, as well as at Calais, because you wanted to continue that, that ruse that Calais was going to be the, uh, the number one target. So, yes, we have deception right up until the moment that, that uh, boots are on the sand. And help us understand the role that uh, individual agents are playing or the role that human intelligence is playing at this point. So how are agents on the ground, how is human intelligence being used to mask this landing? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, uh, agents that the Germans think that they have in their pockets. Um, and they maybe didn't do their homework uh, all that well to figure out that a lot of these people had sort of anti-fascist leanings and were actually under the control of, of, of the UK. So they were double agents. And, and the, you know, the, the code names and sort of the, the backgrounds of some of these people are, are just amazing. Eddie Chapman, uh, a professional criminal and safecracker, his code name was Zigzag. Of course, there's all sorts of great personalities involved in this. Um, there was a, a lady by the last name of Sergeyev, uh, who was French, but her origins were right, white, uh, white Russian. Uh, her code name was Treasure, and she would go back and forth from England to Portugal, feeding the Germans uh, information about these hypothetical units and activities that were happening that weren't really happening. Then there's uh, Dusko Popov, who's um, kind of one of the more fascinating and interesting. He was a Serbian from a, a wealthy family who established himself as a lawyer and businessman. Famously, he's sort of, uh, he's in the, uh, quote, import and export business. Um, this man became sort of one of the models for James Bond, our famous fictional spy. Ian Fleming had met Popoff at a, a casino in Portugal and watched him bluff a rival at Baccarat for the tune of about $40,000, which I would Doing the quick math, I'm saying that's like $700,000 as of today. Um, so the idea that this uh, gambling person who liked fast cars and was sort of a womanizer, who, by the way, his um, his uh, code name was Tricycle, and the, the guys used to joke that that was because it was he, and usually he had two women on the side going at one time. So the fact that uh, Casino Royale and James Bond uh, has a lot of these elements is, I, I think, no coincidence. Um, so it's it's quite a, a group of characters who are feeding false information to to the Germans. And so the we have the run up to D Day. So as I understand it, bodyguards had three main aims: one, convince the Germans that the Padre Calais was the target; two mask the date and time, and then three, stop reinforcements in the Pas de Calais for 14 days. So the deception doesn't end when D-Day begins, right? It continues afterwards, and I believe they managed to deceive the Germans for seven weeks uh, before the reinforcements comes from the Pas de Calais. So just talk about the after, so post-D-Day, help us understand the deception and how it plays out then. That's exactly right. A lot of the groundwork that had taken place sort of froze the Germans. Um, and what I mean by that is one of their very, very strong areas was Calais. Um, they had lots of, of uh, men and machines there ready to stop um, an attack. And the illusion that there were more divisions in the UK than there were helped uh, freeze the Germans in their tracks. So if you get in a car and you want to go from Calais to Normandy, it'll probably take you on the interstate mm, roughly four hours. Now, to move a, a Panzer division that far, it, it's going to take several days probably. But if you think that there are more divisions coming across and they're going to come across at Calais, you don't want to move them. So we have a situation where it was becoming very apparent that Normandy was was the place or one of the places, and orders were given um, to to move the Calais uh, divisions, the German divisions, down into position to help counterattack. And and 
they started to move and then were called back. And so, yes, the um, hypothetical divisions, the the additional uh, strength that was sort of alluded to by double agents and all these other things helps keep the Germans in place. They don't respond for several several weeks. And we also have a situation is when you do respond, you have to deal with air power during the day, prowling every train line and every roadway. And during the evenings, uh, French resistance is taking over and, and blowing up train tracks and sort of funneling people this way and that. Um, that's another thing to talk about when we talk about D-Day is um, intelligence was gained from uh, uh, French citizens beforehand. And the night of the 5th and 6th, we witness uh, something like a thousand points of sabotage within the the, the area um, directed at the Germans. And it's often directed at rail lines. Uh, gas is hard to come by. And so materials are being moved by by rail. And that's something that's obviously very, very difficult to guard miles and miles of track, which allows French resistance uh, troops to go out and and blow up rail lines. Now, in addition, the French resistance contributes after the landing as well. They're the locals. They know the location. They know the people. They know the layout. The Allies were quite flummoxed by the the hedgerow fighting that took place in Normandy. Um, It was very difficult and bizarre terrain, and uh, people who know the area are, are critical to moving forward. When the Allies hit the shore on D-Day, what are they facing? Who is there? You know, we hear of, you know, there's there's the Germans that are, you know, super experienced and, and grizzled veterans through to its old men and young boys and ragtag units of people. You know, what are the Allies facing? I'm, I'm sure it's some combination of, of different elements, but just... Help us understand what's facing them when they hit the beaches on D-Day, those five beaches. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's there's estimates or schedules of of uh, uh, the response time that they they expected from the Germans, and it was like you have to be willing to contend contend with uh, six divisions on this day, and then it's going to be nine on this day, and then it's going to be twelve on this day. And so what you really have out of the 55 divisions of, of, of that the Germans are fielding in France at the time is most, most historians say roughly six are in the Normandy area and able to respond almost immediately. Now, this is a mixture of units. There are some uh, infantry units that are less than full strength or, or less than full capacity uh, that are immediately are there. And then there's there's some relatively hardened uh, regular army uh, armored units. But but you're looking at it sort of uh, contending with a, roughly six divisions on on as as the landings are taking place. So just by point of comparison, you've mentioned division a couple of times. Um, I believe that for the Allies, that's around 15,000 people, maybe a little bit above. Uh, is that correct? And is that the same for the Germans? That's right. That's, that's, uh, traditionally, the, uh, the division is about 15,000 people. And it's, it's similar for the Germans as well. Um, obviously, some divisions, armored divisions, uh, have uh, uh, their complements of tanks as well as the motor vehicles to support those tanks in addition so there's lots of variation, but that's a good rule of thumb is, is 15,000 troops. 15,000. And the five beaches are Utah and Omaha for the Americans, and then it's Juno, Sword and Gold for the British and the Canadians. Is that right? That's right. So uh, you've got uh, Utah and Omaha, a couple of the really large beaches um, for the Americans. And... Uh, Juno is Canadian, and Sword and Gold are the uh, are the British beaches uh, during the landings, and this is taking place over like a a fifty mile stretch of space, and these uh, landing beaches are are quite wide and and quite flat, but they they usually have some sorts of uh, of um, uh, 
land masses in between, and the, the, the beaches are not continuous. They're actually uh, distinct from one another. Mm-hmm. And f- just out of interest for our American listeners, uh, Utah and Omaha, do you have any idea where those, those code names came from? You know, I've, I've often thought about this. This is a, um, a, a town and a state, which doesn't make a lot of sense. You think they would be the same. You know, there's, there's cer- certain logic to a lot of this thing of, of, you know, when it comes to naming cruisers, they're always after, after cities. And when it comes to naming battleships, they're usually states. But this is, you know, there's a little bit of random access to this as far as code words and code names. There's kind of an interesting story about uh, all of the D-Day code words and code names, many of which appeared in crossword puzzles in the Daily Telegraph in the months and weeks leading up to D-Day. So when the Landing Beach codes, uh, code words started to appear in the uh, newspaper in these in these crosswords, uh, as you might imagine, the authorities came a calling, and who they uh, talked to was Leonard Daw, who was the headmaster at a, at the Strand School in Surrey, and um, it was he was the compiler, he was the builder of the uh, of the uh, crossword puzzles, and what was found out eventually was he would let his students actually fill in the boxes with legitimate words, and then he would go back and write the clues. Now, the uh, school was quite near assembly points and and bases for Canadian and American troops who were obviously uh, a little bit more loose-lipped than they should have been. So these kids were hearing code words like Juno, Sword, Omaha, and plugging them into the crossword puzzles they were building. And uh, Daw, the headmaster, unknown as to where they got the clues, was just writing, or got the words, was writing the clues and sending them along uh, to the Daily Telegraph. So it, uh, it's quite a, a bizarre story. Wow, it's so fascinating. And for our listeners, there's so much more parts of this story that you can dig into um, the deceptions in the Balkans, uh, deceptions in uh, Southern Europe, or even mincemeat, which you mentioned earlier. So basically trying to mask the invasion of Sicily and suggest that it's going to be Sardinia or Greece or, or somewhere else that it's not actually going to take place. So just to close out, uh, Corey, could you just tell us a little bit more about the role that intelligence plays in your museum? Like, has, has anybody ever went through and sort of pulled out all of the intelligence artifacts? Because you've got, what did you say it was, like 250,000 artifacts? That's right. You know, one of the big secrets about the National World War II Museum is only a, a small percentage at any one time of the 257,000 and always growing artifacts are out at one, any one time. So... Uh, as you might imagine, we're doing the American experience in World War II. So there are collections from tankers and submariners and 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 on down the line, infantrymen, of course, home front workers, etc. There is a little bit of intelligence information uh, or a little bit of, you know, there are like bis- biscuit case radios, um, Enigma machine, uh, we've got a, a Rupert dummy, of course. You've got to have some of these standard things when you talk about D-Day. So um, the way it works is there very well might be a day that they decide to do an intelligence or espionage in World War II um, exhibit, and then they're going to draw upon many, many collections. But as you know f- from working at the International uh, uh, Spy Museum, there are uh, – many, many fewer uh, espionage collections than there are uh, infantrymen collections. So uh, we, we have a little of both, but m- certainly more uh, tankers and, and sailors than, uh, than spies. Well, it could be good to do a joint exhibition. Some That's right. That would be really cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, 
Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL Spycast. Coming up in next week's show. And it seems to me that one of the, the, the least appreciated chapters is how in the post-Cold War years, the Russian government continued running former Soviet agents deep inside uh, the Western governments, particularly uh, in, in the U.S. intelligence community. If you go to our page, thecyberwire.com slash podcasts slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm Aaron Dietrich, and your host is Dr. Andrew Hammond. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Minzi, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Afua Anakwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Iben. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artifacts, the International Spy Museum.